Live from CAP Radio in Sacramento, this is Insight. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. Nearly one year ago, Sacramento County announced plans to build a village of tiny homes for unhoused residents. The goal was to provide temporary housing and services to stabilize residents and ultimately help them transition to permanent housing. The site was expected to open as early as last summer. But today, it remains closed, and the $7 million project faces mounting delays as well as being half a million dollars over budget. All as unhoused residents remain camped outside waiting for it to open. We'll get an update from CAP Radio reporter Chris Nichols, whose focus is housing and homelessness, on why this tiny home village is taking so long. Also, during the first year of the pandemic, the Sacramento region received nearly $200 million in state funds to address homelessness. That was triple the amount it received two years earlier. That's all according to a new state report. We'll talk about where all that money went and the growing calls for more transparency and accountability in homelessness spending. Chris, thanks for joining us this morning. Hey, Vicki. It's great to be here in studio. Thank you. So let's just start off with that tiny homes project in South Sacramento. Give us some background on the project. When was it first proposed? How was it supposed to address homelessness in the county? Right. There are a lot of questions about the project. Um, Sacramento County announced plans for this last April, so about a year ago. And it's the county's first attempt to open a sanctioned outdoor homeless encampment instead of a traditional indoor shelter. And they're calling this their safe stay community. And officials think it it could be a model for future shelters around the county. I think it's important to note that this is a project that follows years of criticism from advocates and elected leaders in the city of Sacramento who say the county government hasn't done enough to confront the region's homelessness crisis. And on the question of how this project would help South Sacramento, the county says that once the site does eventually open, they plan to offer shelter to unhoused residents who live in the surrounding area. And as you mentioned, Vicki, there are homeless camps right outside the property at Florin and Power End Roads. What will the site look like when it's open and what kind of services will be provided? Once it opens, it will include restrooms, showers, a dining area, a 24-7 security station to check people in and out. Staff will be on site. They'll be in a, a trailer on the property. They'll provide case management and also on-site health assessments. Um, those will help refer residents to outside services such as drug or mental health treatment. The 100 tiny homes uh, that will be used as shelter, those are already on the property. There are rows and rows of these aluminum shed-sized homes, and they've been sitting there since last summer. Yeah, and you have people that are sleeping outside waiting for that tiny home village to open. So these homes, they're ready to go. You can see them from the street. What is taking the county so long to open the other parts of the project? Well, county officials say several changes that were out of their control have slowed things down. For one, the the contractor they hired, CityNet, proposed design changes to the initial plans The county says it also experienced delays in receiving needed construction materials. That led to multiple contractors backing out of work. Also, county spokesperson Jana Haynes says the tiny homes can't open until electrical work is completed at the site. That will provide the homes with heat and cooling, which is a project requirement, something the county board of supervisors wanted to see for the the cold winters and very warm summers. Uh, I was on a tour of the site last month, and Haynes told me that permits have yet to be issued for that site work for the permanent water, sewer, and electrical lines. 
It's certainly frustrating. It's frustrating for people that want to move into this community. It's frustrating for the residents and businesses around this area that we're hoping for some relief very quickly. Um, you know, and it's frustrating for us knowing that there are people that need the services that are going to be offered here and they're not ready yet. Um, but, you know, we've talked about several times that success is the ultimate goal and not necessarily speed. We need to make sure that we can bring people in successfully, um, transition them off the streets and meet their basic needs before moving them out into a stable situation. And that unfortunately is not an easy process and it doesn't happen overnight. And the things that we're going to be offering here can't just, you know, a magic wand can't bring them here. As we all know, when it comes to development and construction, more time typically means more added expenses. How much have these delays added to the project's cost? Well, we don't know all of the added expenses yet, but we do know that the county will be paying approximately $500,000 more than it expected for security costs at the site, according to Haynes. She said that's because it's been paying a private security firm for much longer than anticipated to essentially guard the rows of empty homes while officials deal with the delays that we just discussed And initially, when the project was approved last June, the County Board of Supervisors agreed to spend $7.6 million to build and then operate the site. Given, Chris, that there's been a greater call for accountability on homelessness spending, especially with the large sums of money that are being spent locally and statewide, yet this crisis is just getting worse and and human beings are, are at the core of this. What did Haynes have to say about people who want to see these dollars spent effectively? Well, she acknowledged that there is a lot at stake with this project. As we talked about earlier, this is the county's first sanctioned homeless encampment. It was not easy to get approved. There was a lot of community pushback. And the county wants to make sure this site helps people get off the street and connected to housing and doesn't become a magnet for bringing more illegal camps to the surrounding area. Uh, Here is what Haynes said when I asked her about balancing that need to move quickly with the need to get things right? The answers are not easy, they're not cheap, um, and unfortunately delays are are part of the experience, particularly of standing up a brand new project like this. We've never done this. Um, A lot of the delays were completely unforeseen and unplanned for, um, and we're just kind of rolling with it as we can and working past the challenges that we've seen, and we are incurring additional costs because of those delays. Um, Again, we think that everything that has happened is going to ultimately lead to a more successful facility. But again, it's frustrating. The delays are frustrating. The increased costs are frustrating. But unfortunately for people on the outside looking in, there is so much work happening that they cannot see that takes time, that costs money, um, that they, they don't even know is happening. Literally on the outside looking in. I mean, we mentioned that there are homeless camps right outside of this site and really across South Sacramento. You interviewed some people who are unhoused. What did they tell you? Well, over the past year, I've, I've spoken with a few unhoused people about it. Uh, some at times have camped right outside the project's fence because they thought they could be first in line to ga- gain housing there. Uh, the county says they will draw from the immediate surrounding area. Recently, I spoke with a man named Andy Schroeder. He is 47 and has recently been spending the night in his sleeping bag in a parking lot just yards from the site. Here's part of my conversation with him about the tiny homes. Do you think this would make a big difference in your life? Yeah, it would. I think it would make it, yeah, it would be nice. How so? Uh, Give me some structure, you know, some place of purpose. 
some structure. Yeah, some purpose. Schroeder told me that he's been without a permanent home for more than a decade, and he says people often show up near the site. They want to know when it will uh, it'll open, and he told me he has that same question. Before we move to the next topic, how does the county's model, which is a first for the county, compare with the city of Sacramento's sanctioned encampments? Well, over the past couple of years, the city has opened a few sanctioned encampments of its own, what it calls its safe ground sites. And these have allowed people to either camp in tents or to live in their vehicle. Uh, they had one that operated near Southside Park and another at Miller Park. But county officials have rejected that model, saying tents don't provide enough security. They've said that uh, they will open only open sites with hard-sided structures and with a greater focus on sanitation and security. Uh, The county says that its first project in South Sacramento will not be its last. Uh, Later this summer, the county plans to open 45 more tiny homes, or what they call sleeping cabins, on East Parkway near Highway 99. You're listening to Insight here on CAP Radio. And if you're just joining us, I'm talking with Chris Nichols, who covers housing and homelessness for CAP Radio. So switching gears, Chris, you also wrote about Governor Newsom's, the administration essentially tripling the amount of money it sent to the Sacramento region to address homelessness. What did you learn about that? Well, during the first year of the pandemic, the Sacramento region was awarded nearly $200 million in state funds for homeless and housing services. And that was way up from the $65 million it received just two years earlier. That's all according to a state report presented to the legislature late last month. That is just a huge increase in funding. And it took place at the same time the region's unhoused population hit a record high of more than 9,000 people, I believe nearly 9,300 people. And that is considered a conservative estimate at that because it's a point in time count. So what does this say about how that money was used? Well, local officials say that this massive jump in funding, that it reflects the state's commitment to solving Sacramento's problem. Uh, Lisa Bates heads the planning body Sacramento Steps Forward. She says the lack of progress in reducing homelessness during this period doesn't mean the new money was wasted. Much of it was set aside for future homeless housing projects. I would say it's a timing issue, you know, when we actually receive the funding and when we can get it implemented and on the ground, it takes a while to ramp up the siting and location of shelters and the provision of sheltering services. Definitely, we know that the development of housing takes time. The state report shows that some of the new money was used to buy and then convert local motels into permanent homeless housing through the Newsom administration's Home Key initiative. And those conversions take place relatively quickly, but local officials acknowledged it will be years before some of the other affordable housing projects are completed. So in the meantime, what did local taxpayer and business groups say about this increase in homelessness funding? Well, they said that they understand why the state provided more money, that it makes sense given how the the local homelessness crisis has expanded. Uh, But some, like Amanda Blackwood, who heads the Sacramento Metro Chamber of Commerce, also said that local agencies must do better at explaining what's being accomplished with those dollars. I think a call for added transparency is a really good thing. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, when you are receiving dollars, 
and you need to show what you did with it. Blackwood, for example, uh, called for the Sacramento region to create an easily accessible online dashboard, one that shows how many people are being housed and how much it's costing per unit. Still much more for you to follow, Chris. That's right. Thanks, Vicki. Thank you, Chris. That is Cap Radio's Chris Nichols. Up next, we'll meet a filmmaker who overcame the odds of tracing her Armenian roots in what is now modern-day Turkey, culminating in a documentary you can see on KVIE about her family's exodus from the Armenian genocide. You're listening to Insight on your NPR station, Cap Radio. I'm Vicki Gonzalez. Hi there. If you're enjoying Insight, we think you'll love our podcast, Blue Dot, with your host, that's me, Dave Shlom. Every week, we take a deep dive into science and nature, from the search for life beyond our pale blue dot in the vastness of space to the ecosystems we all depend on. You never know what you'll hear from the physics of Leonardo da Vinci to communications with humpback whales. Check out Blue Dot wherever you get your podcasts. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Insight here on Cap Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. April 24th, 1915, for generations of Armenians, that date marks the beginning of a treacherous and brutal start to the mass killings and expulsion of more than 1.5 million Armenians from their ancestral homelands by the Ottoman Turks. Since the genocide of 1915, Armenians have been scattered all over the world after being forced from their homeland, surviving, creating, and cultivating vibrant diaspora communities. Here in California, from Fresno to Los Angeles, the Bay Area, and here in Sacramento, our state is home to the largest Armenian-American population outside of modern-day Armenia. And like so many immigrant communities, Armenian-Americans trace their roots to find out where their families came from. Their history is a window into their families, their culture, and their values. Filmmaker Ani Hovanisian was born in Fresno, raised in Los Angeles, and lives there now. It took several journeys to trace her Armenian lineage in modern-day Turkey, and along the way uncovered the buried secrets of her family's past in her documentary, The Hidden Map. 7,000 miles away in Los Angeles, I, an American Armenian, was living cut off from the physical touch of my roots. My grandparents' voices and a lifetime of longing drove me across the world to find my beginnings. That's when I met this Scottish explorer. What's your name? Stephen. Stephen. Now, we're off to uncover places not found on modern maps, civilizations that have vanished from the face of the earth. I'm looking for Ermeni. No, Ermeni. Ermeni, Forbidden, sir. Don't photo. Ah, there it goes. If something maliciously demolished an historic building in Britain, they would be prosecuted. Where did the Armenians go? I don't know. You know better than me. There could be no justification 
for what was done in these lands. Probably nowhere else has already so much been destroyed. I'm here to give those monuments a voice. We have lost past. Follow the clues. Look beneath the surface and you'll begin to see the hidden map. Ani's documentary airs tomorrow night on KVIE at 9 p.m. and again on Sunday morning at 7.30 a.m. Ani joins us now to talk about her film. Welcome to Insight. Good morning, Vicki. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for making the time. Let's start off with your family history and set the stage for your documentary. Where is your family originally from? How did they arrive in the United States? And, you know, you grew up in Fresno and then you now are in Los Angeles. Well, my family's history, like the history of so many Armenians, probably most Armenians around the world, is that we started in what was Armenia, in historic Armenia, in our ancestral lands of thousands of years. And then in 1915, when the Ottoman Turks decided that it's time to get rid of the Armenians, that they no longer want Armenians there, they set out this horrible plan to get rid of all of us. And what happened is that miraculously, while most were killed, some, some against all the odds survived. And my family, my grandparents were among those who survived. And uh, my father's parents ended up in the San Joaquin Valley shortly after the genocide um, in Fresno. So my father was actually born in Tulare, California, but my mother's parents also survivors with stories that are so gruesome and so painful that it's difficult to to even repeat and hear. But imagine, imagine in my grandfather's case, going back to his village and finding that everybody was murdered, all 11 of his brothers and sisters, his parents, his grandparents, or my other grandfather who saw his mother and two-year-old brother and with baby in her inside yet to be born being let off on death march and my other grandmother who was taken in and actually kept by a turk and that's why she survived she survived because she was taken in and became a servant to that turk but all these different stories i you asked me a simple question here i go into in, into times and into realities that are are so real um though a hundred years ago. I'll also say that my mother's family ended up not in the United States in the beginning, but they ended up in Kharkov, Ukraine. Ukraine, where we see such horrors today. And during World War II, my mother's family had to, during Stalin's purges, go to Germany to survive. And they were in German work camps. And then from Germany, they made it to the San Joaquin Valley, where my mother and aunt worked in the fields. And uh, before going, my mother went on then to become a doctor, one of two female doctors at UCSF in times when women and certainly immigrant dark women didn't do things like that. So I come from a family, not only of survivors, but um, 
of spectacular stories of resilience and all Armenians are are like that and 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 that's what makes the Armenian diaspora. So yes, I was born in Fresno, grew up in LA, uh, but spend a whole lot of time in Fresno and my Armenian roots. Yeah, and because of that that history that you shared, I mean, that laid the foundation for building a life here in California, but also staying deeply connected to your Armenian roots. How did that converge with a career path into journalism and filmmaking? Uh, I always knew that I wanted to tell our story because I grew up with the stories of our grandparents. And imagine, um, imagine not only our grandparents, but growing up in this little humble home, going every weekend to Fresno, to this neighborhood of of Armenians. And, and it was like a little microcosm of historic Armenia with survivors from Kharpert and Mush and Erzurum and Van and these are all historic Armenian places. And having a father who's a professor of Armenian history at UCLA, who had gathered over a thousand uh, interviews of survivors. So growing up with that background and always being interested in storytelling and people and and not just of Armenians, but of, of all of humanity. There are stories that just I worked for 20 years in television before making this film and every day it was a new story about different cultures about medicine about discovery and so um for me becoming a broadcast journalist was just a natural thing full of curiosity full of interest in humanity and in sharing stories and the Armenian story that was has been silenced for so long and that people don't know about. The world really has forgotten it, even though at the time of the genocide, the world condemned the, the Turks and said, you will pay. But that didn't happen. And uh, so Armenian voices have been somewhat silenced and there is a need to be heard and maybe my voice and my career path and my filmmaking is a little bit of a pathway for that voice to be heard. Yeah, all of those lived experiences culminated into this film, The the Hidden Map, which is very much an Armenian story, but deeply personal to you as a journalist. Before we get into the film, can you just explain geographically where on the map your documentary is focused on? Sure. Well, if you look at a map of Turkey today. Armenians, for for centuries, that was, and parts of that were Armenia. For thousands of years, Armenian civilization has grown there far before it was Turkey. But the part that I really focus on, while I have traveled from the Western tip and and very cosmopolitan uh, Istanbul to the furthest, furthest, furthest east, uh, where you see Mount Ararat and you see Kars, and then that borders the tiny bit of of Armenia, which remains, which is not even a tenth of what it used to be. But the part of Turkey and historic Armenia that I focus on is kind of the eastern part of Turkey. So when you look at a map of Turkey and you head eastward, you will see uh, the 
places and the people and the stories of the hidden map. Where did the name come from, the hidden map? The name came from the explorations and the discoveries that while I was in historic Armenia, going to these lands that have been forbidden for Armenians and the story has been forbidden and denied and Turkey does everything in its power to deny that the genocide ever happened to kind of hide that Armenians even existed. But in while I was filming this and not even filming it, but just discovering uh, the, the lands and stories of the past, I realized and in conversation with Stephen Sim, whom you will meet in the film, a Scottish explorer, this term came up, the hidden map. It's it, This came to be because beneath the map of modern day Turkey, as you see it today, there are so many other maps of Armenia as it used to be. And under those or within those live the stories and the relics and the voices and the creation and the schools and the churches and the monasteries and the destruction. Yet still the resurrection and the existence of all those things for those who know to look beneath the surface of modern day Turkey to discover and uncover the hidden map. Yeah. And you did that. And you mentioned Steve, who is a Scottish explorer. The two of you crossed paths when when you were on your own journey, you know, tracing back your family lineage and Steve is not Stephen is not um he, he's not Armenian. He is in his words in the documentary, he is Scottish, Scottish. <laughs> um how serendipitous was it to cross paths with an explorer on a similar path as yours? Wow. I get chills thinking about it because very few people go to explore historic Armenia. I mean, it's just relics and it's for those who know and care and 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 in the case of Armenians, it's just recently that people have gone back and it's with, been with the help of people like Armin Aroyan and the National Association for Armenian Studies and Research, these groups that have come together. And my father is a historian, taking small groups of brave pilgrims to find their family homes and their find the Armenian past and um Again, it's a very recent thing because Armenians are, people are not allowed to talk about the Armenian history and past and truth and existence there. But it, but we know why we're interested in it. So the few brave people go and find and touch their past. But for me to have gone, and, and that's what I did with a group, but for me to have gone and to be in this old Armenian house in Kayseri, Gesaria Armenians call it, and to see this man who is clearly not Armenian, he's very, very fair with blondish hair, and I just knew he's not Armenian, but he was taking pictures of all the corners and cracks and details of And drawing home. sketches, and too. Thinking, and drawing sketches, and I'm thinking who is this man? And I do what I do. I ask questions with my little 
consumer camcorder rolling at all times. I said, who are you? And he, he was taken aback. He said, who am I? He was like, who are you? He said, I'm Stephen, Stephen Sim. And I said, what are you doing here? And he said, I'm recording what's left of Armenia because in five, 10 years, there may be nothing left. And we say that, and he says that, but at the same time, he knows, and I know that as much as Turkey tries to destroy everything and has destroyed almost everything, all physical and other evidence, that there will always be something left for who, someone who wants to find it. So anyway, was it serendipitous? Was it meant to be? I don't know. But that coming together of an Armenian and a Scotsman um, who were interested in, in the same route, in the same story, but coming from different but same worlds, that was the spark that turned this fire that's been inside me to make a documentary about the Armenian people because it had to be done. I needed the world to hear this story. That's what made it happen. You know, this premise of the film is tracing your people's history, but it also takes a personal turn as well for your own direct family lineage. You're incredibly close to your grandparents, as you just laid out in the first question I asked you in our conversation. I'm going to play a really poignant clip in your film about a red jug and how it has a direct tie to your family lineage. And then uh, we'll chat about it after, but take a listen. I had taken Family of Shadows, a book about my family, with me. And reading from it, I imagined how it had happened. In the summer of 1915, the Armenians began to walk. They followed the gendarmes southward in the direction of Malatya and the river Euphrates. For a brief moment, the Armenians were allowed to stop by the village fountain where Basmashen's singing women once had filled their red jugs. This is in a hole at the edge of old Basmashen. Maybe this is part of a red jug that they used. The red jug that they wrote about? Oh. Just read about it. Holding on tight to the jug that someone close to me had held, my grandfather's voice flooded my mind. And this follows a, a point where you kind of lost hope that you would get that personal connection, and then you find a piece of a red jug, the handle buried in the dirt. It reminded me of when Stephen, that Scottish explorer, said, it's almost as if the land has a memory. The land has a memory and it brings tears to my eyes now remembering and thinking about what it felt like to go to my grandfather Kaspar's village of Basmashen. Basmashen in Armenian and English means a place of many homes and to find nothing there except for a donkey and it was flattened but then to to in the soil almost as if it was waiting for me deeply 
entrenched in the soil, but 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 almost calling me to find this handle, which I'm holding right now, of a red jug that that maybe my grandmother or someone certainly from Basmashen drank from as they were being led off to the death marches. And I think of my grandfather, Kaspar, and how he was 13, 14 years old, maybe, when his mother, pregnant mother, holding the little baby, was let off and separated from him. He was taken actually by a Kurd, and that's why he was saved as as slave labor. But still, it all came to life for me there in Basmashen, and this 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 jug. It just is. Um, it's a part of me. It's living evidence. It's it's a link. It's a it's a tangible, palpable link to my past and to our past and to this continuum that I feel very strongly that we still belong to. You know, Basmashen is no longer Basmashen. It's called Sari Chubuk. They've changed the names. The Turkeys changed the names of thousands of villages and cities and home and and villa and towns. They've they've tried to change everything, but the soil is still the same and the memory is still there it's there to be found and it's even there in the people who've inherited our land so yes it was very moving to find this handle of a red jug jug that um somehow i believe belongs to all of us it's like in your film, you know, when that, a gentleman said towards the end of your documentary that Armenians may be scattered all over the world, but their hearts are here in this sense of belonging. Given that you traveled, you did a total of, I believe, four trips to put this film together. And earlier this year, a recent earthquake and subsequent aftershocks in Turkey hit right in those areas that you visited, which is just devastating for everyone. How does that make you feel? What What are you hearing about the people that live there and the people that you cross paths with? Actually, at least... Um at least a couple of the people um, whom I met were killed. Armenians, hidden Armenians. When I say hidden Armenians, these are people who have grown up in Turkey. And, and they these are people who descend from um, survivors who grew up in Turkish or Kurdish homes and had to take on that identity in order to survive. And then and then their children and grandchildren just became that. But then somehow this connection to their Armenian identity, it, it comes out and the longing for it comes out and the need for that identity comes out. And I met so many people there in, in Turkey who have Armenian roots and are clinging to it. And even non-Armenians, Turks and Kurds who want to come to terms with that horrible past and and accept the wrong of their forebears. So um, that's a very big thing. But the soulful pain of knowing that so many people perished in that earthquake and people whom I met 
who lost homes. I mean, in my film at the end, there is an Armenian church in a place called Diyarbakir, Dikranagert for Armenians. It's a it's a 14th century Armenian church with seven altars, the largest in the Middle East, and it was brought back to life in Turkey, in Dikranagert, and it became a haven for people to go and explore their identity. And now that church has is kind of serving as a gathering place for survivors, Armenians and non-Armenians alike. But the Armenian um, churchkeeper lost his home. So his family is living almost like in a tent or, or something. So it's tragedy upon tragedy upon tragedy, but such resilience and such courage and such strength um, that, that this strong feeling that Armenians and all of humanity will carry on um, lives lives deep in me. Ani, thank you so much for taking the time and congratulations for putting together such a powerful documentary and film. Thank you. I am very pleased that uh, I had this opportunity to be here and I am so thankful that PBS is airing it and PBS KVIE is airing it uh, tomorrow night and, and Sunday. And I hope that everybody could join me in this journey. Ani, I appreciate it. I, I, we appreciate you as well. Ani Hovanissian is an Armenian-American documentary filmmaker. And the documentary that she put together, The Hidden Map, airs tomorrow, Wednesday night, 9 p.m. on KVIE. It will re-air again Sunday morning, starting at 7.30 in the morning. You're listening to Insight here on CAP Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. We're back in just a moment. Hi there. If you're enjoying Insight, we think you'll love our podcast, Blue Dot, with your host, that's me, Dave Shlom. Every week, we take a deep dive into science and nature, from the search for life beyond our pale blue dot in the vastness of space to the ecosystems we all depend on. You never know what you'll hear from the physics of Leonardo da Vinci to communications with humpback whales. Check out Blue Dot wherever you get your podcasts. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Inside on Cap Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. The Sacramento Kings have fans yelling, light the beam after every win. That purple beam from atop Golden One Center is a rallying cry for the Kings' loyal fan base who are on pace to break a historic drought that pretty much any team does not want and dare I say make it to the playoffs which hasn't happened in 16 seasons. As of this morning the Kings are ranked third in the NBA's Western Conference. Denzel Joyce a rapper known as Young Zell is one of those loyal fans who paid homage to the team with an anthem. Young Zell joins us now to talk about why he created the song Light the Beam and the reception from fans. Welcome. 
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. Let's start off with a little bit of where your passion for the Sacramento Kings. When did it first begin? Where did it start? Um, Just being a Kings fan. I've been a Kings fan since I was born. So, you know, just loving them through the hard times and the good times. You know, I just love what what they do for the city, how they bring everybody together. You know, they play hard. We work hard, you know. Yeah. What motivated you to become a rapper and how long have you been doing it? Um, honestly, I started rapping because I used to look at my big brother. He used to be a rapper. I've been doing it since I was seven years old. So I'm 30 now. So it's been a long time. (laughs) So when did you decide to converge your musical talent with your love for the Sacramento Kings into this song? Um, honestly, I was just watching, watching a game and I used to do little Kings raps and stuff here and there. I do my regular music and I was like, I've done King songs in the past when I was younger and I was like, let me do it again. You know, I see the beam and I was just feeling good after a win, found a beat and just went to work. <laughs> you know, given that you've been a Kings fan for a long time, what does the beam mean to you? Cause it really just took off this season. Yeah, it means a lot. Cause it's, it's kind of like a, um, you know, it, it kind of represents the city now. Uh, it's like when you go to other cities, they have certain things. Like I went to Pittsburgh because my wife is a Steelers fan. You know, they're known for like their six bridges that they have out there. Um, different cities have their main thing. Now that Sacramento, we have the beam. It's kind of a tourist attraction. Like you, when you come to Sacramento, you got to see the beam. <laughs> How long did it take for you to put together the song Light the Beam and really go from that concept, that idea to the release on social media? Um, it probably took me about, honestly, about 30 minutes to an hour to write and everything. And I recorded it probably a week or two later at my friend's house. And then it went straight to social media within a couple of days and it went crazy. Let's take a listen. Tell them like the beam now. You can tell them, you can tell them like the beam now. Tell them like the beam, like the, like the beam now. You can tell them, you can tell them like the beam now. Tell them like the beam now. If you repping that Kings like the beam now. Sack crowd, make sure everyone knows. Let me tell you how this thing really goes. Yeah, we travel deep. Whether we home or on the road, we lit. You don't want that smoke, we the team of the year. We shaking things over here, don't doubt. We believe over here, we don't bleed over here. And let me just speak real clear. Only deal with real kings over here. So tell me what you see now. All right, what made you choose the beat to rap over? Um, I just love upbeat uh upbeat sounds and um you know it's kind of like a bay area sound because the bay area is kind of like sacramento's cousin you know so i just love to have fun party songs that's kind of my personality so i was like if if this song does go somewhere i want people to hear it and really just want to party and just have listen to it on a regular day basis and people have that's for sure i mean you posted it on social media and it went viral i mean it's received attention from the new york times it has over a quarter million views on twitter is making the rounds on instagram and TikTok. Did you expect this? No, I did not expect it. You know, you always hope and fingers crossed, but I definitely did not expect this. How does it feel? What do you think that says about your song and what it means to people who are Sack Kings fans? Uh, and honestly, for me personally, it means the world because like, especially when I seen the New York Times, I just broke down, you know, like this is it's been a dream of mine just to be heard, you know, just for people to be like, oh, my gosh, he, he can rap. He's good. You know, and I've been doing it for so long. And with the support of my family and friends is so appreciative. And then especially to have Kings fans, because everybody knows that knows me knows I'm a diehard Kings fan. So this this might mean a little bit more for me, just a little bit more. What has been the response from your family and your friends? 
Oh, nothing but supportive. Nothing but supportive. It honestly, without them, I it probably wouldn't have gone as far as it has. You know, they they make sure they show people. They post it every day. They got my back. They always they was like, you deserve this, man. You deserve this. I I without them, I couldn't do it. It's also leading to more opportunities. I believe you're the creator of a new anthem for D'Lo and KC. That's a sports talk program on ESPN thirteen twenty. How did that collaboration happen? Man, honestly, I'm so glad you brought... Without D'Lo and KC, I definitely would not be anywhere there. So they have a thing called Drake Bars. It's, they kind of started the light. The, because I stopped rapping for a minute. I, I kind of just got into regular life. I'm like, well, it's not working. I'm just going to stop. You know, I wrote for myself. And then they have this thing called Drake Bars where, you, you know, after every King's win, you you do a little rap for the Kings or whatever. And I got on there. And then I got a lot of good feedback. Then I thought of Light the Beam. And they start playing it after every Kings win and they've always had my back and they asked me can you do a intro song and it was no question man those are my brothers no question given that the Kings are currently ranked third in the Western Conference and they got you know less than 20 games left of the regular season do you feel like the Kings are having a special moment right now definitely definitely well well overdue so it's it's crazy sometimes I'm watching it I'm like they are not this good. This is unreal. Like it doesn't. I'm waiting to wake up. It feels like a dream, but I'm I'm loving it. They're so they're so good. They're playing good. Mike Brown got them playing good. Fox All Star, Sabonis All Star, everybody contributing. It's 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 amazing. And it's been a minute, right? Yes. I mean, the last time the Kings made a playoff appearance was like in 2006. What yes. kept your loyalty throughout all these years? Um, just you know me. I'm. When I'm loyal to something, I'm just I'm I'm super loyal. I can't hop bandwagon. I, you know, I was like this this is my city. I love it, and so seeing them do good was all I ever wanted. You know, um, I just want no matter what. I always knew it could have been a 30 year playoff drought. I was still going to be a fan. Still make songs for them. <laughs> yeah, even though this has been the the much needed boost to to your career as as a musician and an artist. Do you have any events or performances coming up? Yeah, I actually do. I have a um, show called Mini Mansion Live. It's a series I usually do on Instagram um, and Facebook Live. Uh, usually just go on there with some of my friends, rap a couple songs and perform. And people start saying, when are you going to do this in person? So this is going to be my first one. It's live. It's called Mini Mansion Live. It's a donation-based show. So you pay what you want. To what, whatever you think we deserve, we you know uh, that's what you get to get in, and you come watch a performance. Um, I'm gonna have myself already, Kai, uh, Rockstar Rick and Drew V, Rich for Life, hosted by my boy Chizel, and 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 spins by DJ D Wall. So it, it's gonna be fun. My mom gonna be there. My dad gonna. <laughs> it's gonna be a family event. We're gonna have fun. That's awesome. You, given that this song has really just took off, have you received any kind of response from the Sacramento Kings or any of the players uh i have not i've seen the players they've watched they watched a couple of my stories so <laughs> shout out to them I, I've, every time i see it it feels like goosebumps to just even them watching so i haven't heard nothing directly from the kings i'm fingers crossed everybody's i appreciate social media and everything because everybody's pushing like we got to get you to perform at halftime or before or after a game or something so that's 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 a dream and just know if i get that chance man it's it, it's gonna be everything to me that's what i was leading towards i'm like i feel like this is prime for you actually performing at golden one center and during a king's game no less what would that mean to you oh it'll, it'll mean the world it'll mean the world and I'll, i'm it's gonna be a party that one song i'm gonna make it feel like a concert it's gonna <laughs> i'm gonna make sure everybody's up dancing kids 
kids, older people, everybody, man. We're it's gonna be a good time, and it, it, honestly, like I said, it's it's everything I'm praying and hoping for. The energy this season, I mean, it goes well beyond the court. Like you go to the game, and the energy is just palpable, and then it transcends across the city. You yeah. have beams at like restaurants and and bars and stuff yeah. that take part. What is what does that mean for you as someone who you know this is your hometown? You call this place home? Yeah, it's it, it's it's crazy. Like I'm. Just walking downtown and walking all over Sacramento and seeing the energy, like you said, and, you know, you're going to places, seeing the beam drinks, beam type foods and stuff like that. Like it's the energy is infectious. You know, when the team does good, it really shows you how good the city can do. It's giving, you know, small businesses, you know, more more income, more revenue, uh, up and coming artists is like me, giving us chances to make a song about the Kings and get a little bit of notoriety. You know, so it it really helps out everybody. Young Zell, thank you so much. And I'm so happy that after a pause of rapping, you took it up again and, and look what came of it. Yeah, it shows never never give up on your dreams. You know, I, I was close. I was very close. When you do it for so long and nobody's listening, which is fine, you know, you do it for yourself. And then you get to a point where you say, you know what, get, give it another shot. Don't don't give up. You can you can do anything you want, you know, as long as you put your mind to it and and you can always go get what you need. Well, thank you for putting it together. Young Zell is a Sacramento-based rapper who released Light the Beam. That is a song dedicated to the Sacramento Kings and the lighting of the purple beam after every win. And with that, that's it for Insight. Today, you can learn more about our guests at capradio.org slash insight. You can also subscribe to the Insight podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you want to join the conversation, email us at insight at capradio.org. Thank you to producers Nick Dobis and Victor Corral-Martin with managing editor Arm Sarkissian. Our digital producer is Megan Minata. Insight's technical director and engineer is Mark Jones. Our show music is produced by Adrian Gilmore. I'm Vicki Gonzalez. Thanks for joining us. We'll catch you back here tomorrow. But in the meantime, here is Young Zell, Like the Beam. You can tell them, you can tell them, like the beam now. Tell them, like the beam now. You can tell them, you can tell them, like the beam now. Tell them, like the beam, like the, like the beam now. You can tell them, you can tell them, like the beam now. Tell them like the beam now. If you reppin' that Kings, like the beam now. Sack crowd, make sure everyone knows. Let me tell you how this thing really goes. Yeah, we travel deep. Whether we home or on the road, we lit. You don't want that smoke, we the team of the year. We shaking things over here, don't doubt. We believe over here, we don't bleed over here. And let me just speak real clear. Only deal with real Kings over here. So tell me what you see now. Coming down the lane off the rebound. It's 916 now. Look toward the sky like the beam now. Tell them like the beam, like the like the beam now. You can tell them, you can tell them like the beam now. Tell them like the beam now. You can tell them, you can tell them like the beam now. Tell them like the beam, like the like the beam now. You can tell them, you can tell them like the beam now. Tell them like the beam now. If you reppin' that kings like the beam now. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. 
NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.